I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Monica Guzman is Senior Fellow for Public Practice at Braver Angels, a nonprofit working to depolarize America. She's also founder and CEO of Reclaim Curiosity, an organization working to build a more curious world, and author of I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. Monica was a 2019 fellow at the Henry M. Jackson Foundation and a 2016 fellow at Harvard's Neiman Foundation for Journalism. She's an advisor for Starts With Us and Generations Over Dinner Project. She was named one of the 50 most influential women in Seattle, served twice as a juror for the Pulitzer Prizes, and plays a barbarian named Shadrach in her besties Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Monica, thanks so much for joining us a second time. Hey, hey, it's really good to be back on with you. Well, I'm glad that we're both glad that you're here. And I just want to acknowledge that at the time of this recording, you've just celebrated the one-year anniversary of your aforementioned book. I never thought of it that way. So congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, it feels very, very surreal. The The last year has been something like a whirlwind where you don't really remember what things were like before. So it's that <laughs> kind of thing. It's It's pretty neat. That's great. Now, I don't need an excuse to invite you on this show. You're incredibly thoughtful with your actions and words, and your approach is so empathy forward, which I really admire. But I did invite you on for a specific reason this time, and this is actually the first time I've ever done this on this show. I wanted you to respond to something another guest said, specifically Pete Davis. He's a civic advocate, writer, co-founder of the Democracy Policy Network, and author of Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. I actually think you and Pete would get along famously. I think you could do wonderful work together. And while he didn't mention Braver Angels by name, he took issue with the approach that the organization is rather famous for, bringing conservatives and liberals together across the political divide to have healthier, more productive conversations. But before we get to that, I'd love to catch up and lay a bit of groundwork in the process. The last time we spoke, I think it was in 2021, you were the director of digital and storytelling at Braver Angels. So how is your role as senior fellow for public practice different from your former one? And what does it encompass? Yeah, so I changed that title in part to acknowledge that after I published my book, a lot of doors were opening that just weren't there before for me to step in and share some ideas and try to make a case that it felt like I was uniquely situated to make and that I was really passionate about. So a lot more of my time was taken with that. Like when the book came out, I had no idea whether anyone was going to (laughs) care. And I thought, well, I'll do two months of a book tour. I paid for it myself. You know, I've got a few cities with some connections and let's do some stuff here and there. And I just didn't know. I just figured, well, by summer 2022, things will probably be mostly back to normal. Like, I don't, I just don't know. And that's not what happened at all. It did really well. Yeah. And there was just interest from so many corners. And I realized this can't be a side thing. It needs to be the whole thing. Because as I went out and traveled and talked with all kinds of different people, like students, people in businesses and corporations, people in agencies, There was so much to learn. And you've talked to me, you know, once before, you probably know that I'm a fairly curious person. (laughs) And I realized that there's this interfacing that I get to do and people ask me some really tough stuff and I want to be fully there for that. And it also made me realize that the reason I wrote the book is because I really am obsessed with people and whether something makes sense enough to a person for them to try it in their own lives is a very different question than whether something makes sense conceptually or can be spoken about intellectually in an interesting way. All of that is castles in the sky unless it meets people where they are. That's always been my jam. And the title change to Senior Fellow for Public Practice meant public practice is what I think unlocks everything. You know, if people think this is a great idea, but they don't see how it fits in their lives, then it doesn't really matter. So that's the thing that I want to step into. So that was the title change. But largely it reflects what I'm doing now already, you know, when I speak with you, (laughs) when I accept opportunities to travel and go to conferences and and meet students and, and do whatever that is. But also when I sit down and try to wrestle into an essay, something really tricky and I give myself the space and time to do that. 
So it's that. It's stepping away from what, what attempted to be more of a management role within an organization to more explicitly an external role that it's so much more than Braver Angels. This is a whole thing. <laughs> I can say more, but that's the basics. Obsessed with people. I think that does sum up your ethos rather well. You know, it reminds me of a quote from your first appearance on this podcast all the way back in episode 38. You said, quote, journalism beckoned me with the opportunity to tell stories. And what I didn't anticipate was how deeply in love I would fall with the bottomless mystery of people. There's all kinds of questions you can ask about issues and events and whatnot. To me, there's only one bottomless well, and that's each individual person. There's always so much to discover, end quote. I guess my question is, and I don't think I asked this in your first appearance, how did you get from a little girl at a Burger King in Summersworth, New Hampshire, at nine years old, terrified to ask the cashier for another salt packet, having your mother have to kind of cajole you into doing it? How did you go from that, from being terrified to speak to a stranger, to being obsessed with people? Speaking of bridge building, that seems like quite the bridge to build. The scenes that come to mind as I ask that question come from my internship the summer after my freshman year of college. I got an internship with a local paper in Dover, New Hampshire, Foster's Daily Democrat, family owned for over 100 years. That's such an old school name for a newspaper. The moment you said it, I was like, that sounds like a 100 year old. It was. <laughs> newspaper. <laughs> it's great. And I remember they assigned me sort of man on the street type things where you have to go out and just stop people in the street and ask them a question and write down their answer. Oh, that was hard. I really didn't want to do that. But something in my head said, well, it's sort of laughable that you want to be a journalist if you can't. You have to do this. So I remember that. I remember pushing through that. And now that I think back on how fearful I was it's so funny because that's the easiest thing to do for me now. Just stop people and say hi. And if, if you get rejected, so what? But back then, somebody looking at me like I'm interrupting them or ruining their day was just like the worst thing I could imagine. So that scene definitely comes to mind. And then I remember, too, some of the stories I was writing where I remember one that was about lunchboxes, of all things. I was an intern. It would have been the early 2000s. And there was a year where Metal lunchboxes were coming back. and It was a trendy thing. And I go down to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I just decide that this is the most interesting thing in the world. These lunchboxes. They're absolutely fascinating. Like, what is going on? This is so cool. And I go to the store and I look at them. So it started out by like, the people are the means to my learning more. And it was so fun. And then, and I talk about this in the book, how curiosity about an idea can turn into curiosity about a person. I find that a really wonderful pivot, a really, really powerful pivot that I hardly ever hear you know, articulated. But that's sort of what happened is it starts with the fascination for lunchboxes, for the story I'm writing as a basically a kid. And it ends with meeting the owner of the store who himself is super obsessed with lunchboxes and learning why and why this particular one and why they stock so many. And finding that person really interesting. And so that happens over and over and over and over and over again. And, and it fed back into my life. I was a shyer person for sure. But I think I just always saw the world as a pretty big and interesting place. And I'm just guessing here. But I think the more that I practiced just going up to people and asking something, I think I learned something, which is that if I approach people with a genuinely curious question about something they know about, they almost always like it. They're not going to reject it all that often. And even if I ask them a question that is scarier for them, if I lead into it with genuine interest in getting them right and listening to who they are, then they're not going to reject it. They're not going to reject me. I think that just became like a blueprint. That's very well said. I was on a podcast a little while ago, and I'm trying to get good at being a guest I think I'm halfway there at being a decent host, but I'm trying to get better at being a guest. And so I was on a, another podcast and one of the questions they asked was, you know, they were rattling off names of people I had spoken with. I think they might've even included you in that list. And they were like, how do you get these people on the show? And I wish there was like some magic incantation that I say, or some kind of secret sauce. You know, I wish there was something that would just unlock, you know, something that was going to blow your mind. But the fact of the matter is, is that 
it's not that I do anything special. I think that it's literally just writing an email that gives my intention that I am genuinely interested in what a person has to say rather than using that person as like an engine to my own ends, right? Right. People can sense that with journalists too. Oh, yeah. Like they can sense if a journalist is talking with them to use that person and their quotes to get towards a story the journalist decided they already wanted to write before they set foot on the ground versus asking that person a question to genuinely get to why the person thinks what they do and then going from there. Yep, exactly. When I did, you know, lots of interviews and I was doing daily reporting and I remember feeling like, I don't know, like the journalism, the reporting piece was kind of on the side a little bit that really I'm getting to know the person and then we'll see, you know, that then we'll see where this puts me back on this job I have to do. <laughs> like a, there's, there's a curiosity. I'm spinning it up. I'm, I'm letting it go. I'm like winding it up and then letting it go intuitively, but in the moment with this person, in the presence of this person. But yeah, exactly. I think there's a lot of really interesting conversations that's led to in journalism proper about exploitation and about using people and what that's meant for some communities, what that's meant for people's ability to tell honest stories. You know, if we're charged with this as part of a democracy, the fourth estate and all of that, then we better be really responsible and understand what it means. And I haven't heard a lot being said about how curiosity really is sort of a form of it's a form of caring. It's a form of making sure that you get someone else right beyond the sort of stenographer's checklist that is traditional reporting. Yes. No, I think that's absolutely right. Well, two things stood out to me about something you said, Monica. One, there seems to be something that I think people successful in their fields kind of share in common, which is running towards whatever their fear is rather than running away from it. You know, like if your fear is public speaking, let me run towards that fear rather than shy away from it. And the other thing that stood out to me was this idea of other people being funnels for or beacons of knowledge. It seems like the way that you were able to kind of unlock that part of you that was able to do public speaking and speaking with other people was a reframing of what people represented to you. Mm. So rather than people representing something that was scary, they were opportunities to learn more about a topic that interested you, like metal lunchboxes. Yeah. I don't know. I find that answer not only just really endearing, but also a little bit old-fashioned in a good way. I do wonder if in the age of the internet, right? Because I imagine when you were coming of age as a journalist, obviously the internet was around, but it was a little more nascent than it is today. And I do wonder if in thinking that we have the ability to learn anything within milliseconds, everything's just a Google away, which isn't necessarily false. We're losing something very real and tangible and not getting that information from our fellow human beings and getting that information filtered through their perspective and their history. I do wonder if that cold, detached knowledge we get from Google fundamentally loses something that you were getting when you were interviewing people in New Hampshire about lunchboxes. Yeah, no, I, I think definitely. And I wish I remembered the quote, but a colleague at Braver Angels months ago sent me, sent me a quote that basically said that some answers have to be listened to from the people speaking them. And it was a quote about empathy, that empathy sort of comes from that. It isn't just knowledge, what we learn from each other. When people try to explain themselves, when people communicate information, they also communicate a sort of emotional tone, attention, just the way that they smile or apologize if they trip over their words or the way that they you know, invite you to sit down or all of these other things communicate a lot more than just the knowledge. It's almost like we give each other the opportunity to be ourselves and practice what ourselves even is. Somebody the other day talked about how beautiful it is to be confronted with your own views. And I found that a really wonderful phrase. Like a lot of times we're not even confronted with our own views. Like people don't ask us what we believe about anything a lot of the time, especially if we're surrounded by people who think like us. So we don't get to practice them. So I think there's something about that, that when you're asked about something that matters to you, and so then you decide to go ahead and try to share it in words and gestures and whatnot, whatever information you're partaking, you're trying to share, you're also sharing more. It's a way for you to understand yourself better in the process of letting someone else in. So there's a lot that happens there. And those things, they do happen to some degree online. I'm not going to say they don't, but there's a lot of data that does not get across. Yeah. And there's a lot of accountability that you don't have to feel. 
So it's just not penetrating. It's not as profound or meaningful. We have completely (laughs) walked away from a world where that was really one of the only ways people could communicate. Yes. You make such a good point there about the importance of freedom of speech, which I'm sure we could dedicate an entirely different episode to. But I do want to just make just a quick note about that, which is that I think often when we talk about freedom of speech, we're talking about the importance of talking to one another about ideas, which I think is, of course, of vital importance. The way that we can figure out what the best idea is, is to talk to each other about competing ideas. But beyond that, I imagine similar to how you going through the process of writing your book helped you better understand and hone your ideas that eventually made it into or were left out of the book. It's almost like painting. You're like, okay, I picture a tree. Okay, well, now that I need to paint it, what colors am I going to use? What style am I painting this tree in? Am I doing it abstract? Am I doing impressionistic? Am I using watercolors, oils? The journey from your mind to the page, whether it's a painting or a book, that journey itself helps you figure out what the idea is. And I think similarly, just like you said, Monica, talking an idea out, even if it's an idea that you've held close to yourself for years, you're like, this is a fundamental part of my identity. Talking it out can help you figure out in real time where the weaknesses might be, You know what's a little shaky. And I think that that's an undercovered aspect of why freedom of speech as a small tangent is so important because talking out an idea helps us better understand what we think. Yeah, exactly. It's one of the enduring frustrations of being a writer all the times in my life where the feeling I have in my head about this new idea is that it is solid. And then I start writing. (laughs) And and it's not that solid. (laughs) And it takes a lot of work just to get it down into a language at all, right? Because things exist in our head and they're not really in a language. You know, language is literally a technology to transfer meaning. And so our minds to ourselves do not need language. All they need is whatever the heck is enough to make us feel that we're onto something. And it's like a rush. It's like an emotional thing. So writing is really hard. You know, you have to really get it pretty solid. But something lighter that can still be challenging, but not so much that, you know, it becomes a chore is just talking. Exactly. So so thank you for bringing that up, because I think that's really insightful, that freedom of speech keeps us nimble, keeps us putting things into language so that we don't just walk around thinking we figured stuff out to ourselves. Even if it feels right, it doesn't really mean anything until you create something with it, you know, until you put it out there. You're not going to know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm an amazing painter. I'm an amazing artist in my head. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm 10 for 10. Every image I draw in my mind is perfect. It could go into MoMA or LACMA. So good. It's just whenever I try and put that darned paintbrush to the page that things fall apart. Language is a technology to transfer meaning. Mm, That is a great saying. Did you just come up with that off the cuff? I guess so. (laughs) Holy moly, Monica. All right. Well, you heard it here first. (laughs) Okay. So let's get back to Braver Angels. During a, a March 2022 conversation about your book with famed fellow author and journalist Jonathan Rausch, you recalled how you came to be involved with the organization. And this quote is slightly abridged, but you said, quote, I've been a journalist pretty much my whole career, and it's been very important to me, that responsibility to help people understand each other. And journalism has been a wonderful way to do that. It's service to society. I take it seriously. And there was a point sometime in the last several years when I started to worry quite a lot about what had been building in terms of distrust in this country, not just distrust of journalists, but distrust of Americans against Americans. And I saw that that was completely undermining the ability to tell stories into this climate that could actually be heard and have an impact across different groups of people. And I'd observed that for many years, but then it got so bad after the 2016 election when I would have conversations with many of my fellow liberals, but I think this was happening all over the political spectrum, having conversations where I started to see the grip of certainty, that people were sure, that they knew everything there was to know about the other side and were making judgments based on that certainty That to me just wasn't based on evidence. It was based on feeling. And so I think that just started to grow and grow in me until I finally decided I think I might need to step outside of daily journalism to try and figure this out another way, end quote. And in 2019, at a small event of a few hundred people held by the Aspen Institute called Weave the People, you saw pamphlets on chairs for an organization called Braver Angels. Well, 
I actually think probably at the time it was called Better Angels. But what was it about their approach? Because you were already active in this space. You were at the Weave the People event. So what was it about the Braver Angels approach that stood out? Yeah. So I I was active in the space of political bridging in a sense. But at the time, I was running a publication in Seattle called The Evergrey. And what we were trying to do was make a, a radically intimate and accessible space for people in the city of all perspectives to talk about the stuff that was going on. And we did some really awesome projects that I'm really, really proud of. But we didn't focus on the political divide. It, did, it didn't make sense to. So that's one thing is I sensed that the political divide was a particularly tough one. And in Seattle, it's not left versus right so much as far left versus moderate left. But you still saw the same kind of breakages. And I saw the city act less smart than it was. And it was disappointing. And I didn't know what to make of it. And, and I was getting emotional about it. So all that was the background. But I think because of my parents in particular, so my parents and I are politically divided and they voted twice for Trump and I voted twice for the Democratic presidential candidates. I had in the back of my mind this sense that maybe I really would focus on this if I could. I think this is what's animating so much. And I saw the pamphlets and it said that this is an organization where leadership is half conservative and half liberal. And I was like, really? Like this exists? That can't possibly exist. I mean, the vitriol about this particular divide that I've heard in my life would just make it seem like that just couldn't happen. And it was speaking to a sort of hopelessness I felt about America generally. Like we're we're so divided on this one thing. I don't I don't know how we're going to come back together. You know, I'm I'm here in Seattle working on this piece, but you know, the rest of it just all sounds way too big, and I don't know how anybody could reach across the country. And make an impact on this. And then I saw the pamphlet and somebody was already doing it. And the other thing was that I had heard about civic organizations that were doing, you know, really good job getting people to think about what it means to be a citizen and get more engaged in your community. I I was more steeped in that, frankly, than I was in anything, you know, political divide. that, That wasn't my world. But those conversations, it seemed like they weren't getting to the really tough core that I saw you know, which was something about the political divide. It's like, we were kind of avoiding that. We were dodging it. We were giving it a different name, you know, but that was the meat of it. And then here's this organization that that's exactly what they were doing. And unapologetically, they weren't trying to hide it or anything. And frankly, just the idea that it was half red and half blue leadership just blew my mind. I was like, how is that even possible? So I had to get closer to it to understand how. I do wonder... How much of this problem that you're articulating, which I think anyone who hasn't lived in a cave over the last 10 years recognizes readily, if they have any kind of political conversations with anyone, they know exactly of the problem you're speaking to, which is that the temperature seems like it's risen. Political divides between people seem greater than ever before. But I do wonder, what's the chicken? What's the egg here, right? Mm, mm -hmm. Is it that the political divide has become greater because our political differences have increased or that we've given more salience to our political identities and that acknowledgement of those identities and prominence of those identities has made the divisions greater? Is it that Republicans and Democrats are more different than ever before? Or is it that we're constantly talking about our Republican and or Democrat identities all the time So those are the lenses through which we're seeing one another, therefore making the divide bigger. Oh, yeah. No, I think the latter has a huge role to play. I think the former is where political differences are contributing to the divide is high stakes about the issues and how people feel that they are very, very high stakes. But that gets informed by the identity piece. Literally yesterday, I was on Facebook and I saw one of those memes on my feed and it had, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, you know, it had gone everywhere. And the meme said, the word woke is becoming more beautiful by the day. Why? Because the absolute worst people on earth use it as a slur against everything that is good. Stay woke. So, I mean, to me, that's an example of it's us versus them so clearly. And how you use a word is now a way that I am going to divide the us and the them. But either way, that's the behavior that's repeating itself and has repeated itself so often that it's just made so many people feel that 
whatever objective threat exists in our policymaking toward them is so much more amplified because it is easier. It's very tempting to just go ahead and make those certain pronouncements about groups of people really, really being out to get you. You know, not just that there's things that aren't being communicated or we ought to talk more about this. No, it's it's very different than that. It's their evil and all of that. And we see that everywhere. We do. We see that everywhere. That's just one example. So yeah, I, I do. I think that the latter, how we think about each other is everything. Yes. Circling back to your conversation with Rausch, he's been collaborating with Brave Angels for several years now. He's appeared on the Brave Angels podcast multiple times, speaking with fellow guest of Where We Go Next, John Wood Jr. And of Braver Angels, Roush has said, quote, blues and reds in equal numbers. The idea is no one is trying to persuade anyone of anything. We're just relearning how to communicate, end quote. And my card's on the table. I'm quite glad <laughs> that Braver Angels exist. I've been to one of their events. I really enjoyed my time during that workshop. I want to hone in on one line from that Roush quote, blues and reds and equal numbers. And I'd like to read a quote from you about Braver Angels from the You Are Not So Smart podcast that I think leads us really well into our conversation about Pete's perspective on the organization. You said, quote, we have something like 90 chapters all across the country. Each chapter is led by equal groups of conservatives and liberals, which is hard, but possible. It was actually founded by a marriage therapist. The idea being that there's a really good analogy between Republicans and Democrats sort of on the brink and couples on the brink of divorce. There's something like 50 offerings, workshops and skill trainings and live debates where the point isn't to win, but to do a collective search for truth across the divide. But all those programs are about finding a better way to actually see past the division and the animosity to who and what is really there, who your neighbors really are, what these different beliefs really are, and then bringing that back into our communities so that we can get more done, end quote. And I wanted to read that because I think it is a really great encapsulation of what Braver Angels attempts to achieve and does achieve. And I think it's a really good lead in to what Pete has to say. So this is a good time to revisit that talk ahead with Pete, specifically a three-minute segment right in the middle of it. So let's listen to what he has to say about the Braver Angels approach. I'm a little skeptical of these projects that are like, we are divided. There is a red side and a blue side. And the red side and the blue side are going to meet. They're going to send representatives to meet. They both care about having peace between these two sides. And they're going to meet and they're going to have calm conversations with their red hat on and their blue hat on. And out of that is going to come the solution. I think very often in history, that is not how divides change. Because notice what happens when you do it that way. You are actually entrenching the divide by saying, I am accepting that you are on each of these sides, and I'm accepting that the way you have to meet is where you each share your sides, and you must talk in the same language that we've been talking in this fight, but just be calmer and be more listening. The real way it changes is half the people on one side start bowling with half the people on the other side not knowing that they're on the other side or purposefully ignoring that they're on the other side, and they get really into bowling. And then another set of people from one side, another set of other people from other side start going back to synagogue, and they meet people at the synagogue, and they do ceremonies and traditions together, and they build relationships. And another set of people even stay within politics. They discover they're both into anti-monopoly policy. And they form an anti-monopoly policy caucus. And they get so into anti-monopoly policy that the new dividing line is between the pro-monopoly people and the anti-monopoly people. And then another side is working at an office together. Some people from one side and some people on the other side are working at an office together. And their bosses are some from one side and some from the other. And they unionize. And out of the transformative, revolutionary, almost religious experience of a strike after five years of building solidarity on the shop floor... They see more in common with their fellow workers than with their employees. And over that, you've had so many new divides drawn. You've had so many new relationships weaved that you can't even see the original dividing line. Or the original dividing line's there, but you have enough connections across the dividing line that everyone cools their jets a bit. That has happened hundreds and hundreds of times throughout American history. 
And so a multiplicity of new communities, new surprises. And honestly, it doesn't need to be all rainbows and unicorns. New divides that you're mad at other people for other reasons, (laughs) you know, that allow us to heal. The problem is not that there's fighting. The problem is that the fighting has stayed the same and not resolved itself for so long. And that fact that everyone is forced to choose along one dividing line creates the further entrenchment when really a healthy civic life would be a lot of divides emerging, a lot of divides being resolved in a constant burbling of different divides that allows none of them to be so entrenched that they become what we have now. So when you first heard that clip and listening back to it again now, what is your reaction? He is spot on about the healthy ways that we relate to each other where no one divide takes a prominent role in part because you're not constantly highlighting it and you're just living life in a weave of relationships that, that again, are, yeah, exactly what he said, are so complex that it's a check and balance system. You know, we think of our government having checks and balances. This is the natural, organic check and balance ecosystem of human interaction. We're having naturally organic communication and interaction with people who are different from us in so many levels that it checks any kind of deepening trench on any one of them. That's absolutely right. Obviously, I have more reaction, but I'll start there. It's a good place to start. And this is kind of a delicate conversation for me to have because I am a fan of Braver Angels. But I do wonder, you know, when I was talking with Pete and he said that, you and John Wood Jr. kind of immediately came to mind because you are the two people from Braver Angels with whom I've spoken. And the two of you are doing such good work. The organization of Braver Angels, in my opinion, is doing such good work. But then I heard Pete's perspective on it, not specifically Braver Angels, but that approach of let's label ourselves as reds and blues and now talk about how we can bridge this divide. His perspective on how that actually limits our ability to make connections and create new divides or create new connections across a whole wide spectrum of ways of being and identities, it kind of just burrowed itself into my brain for I think a couple months before I reached out to you and asked if you wanted to come on. And it's been kind of bugging me, you know, because I remain a fan of your organization, but I do wonder if that approach is limiting our ability to come together. And I guess I just kind of wanted to talk that through with you. Yeah, there's a lot of layers to this, the way it shows up in my mind. But what he's talking about is contact theory, which lots of folks talk about as being the most effective proven way to get people to stop vilifying each other is get them together. Just get them together. Get them together doing anything else. Just being people together. So one of the things I think about is the Heineken ad. Do you know about the famous Heineken ad from years ago? Uh, Do you know what I'm talking about? Go on. (laughs) Okay, I'll explain it. So Heineken, the beer company, made this ad that went viral. And you can Google like Heineken ad and see it for yourself. What they did was they recruited people who were on the opposite side of really contentious issues. Oh, I've seen this. It's very good. Yeah. 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 So for example, you know, one person is trans and another person has issues with the trans identity, that level of thing, but that over multiple differences. Okay. Political and identity based and whatnot. And so in the ad, what you see is that those people were first interviewed about their views, and then they were invited to just show up at a warehouse and meet this other person that they didn't know anything about what the other person believed or whatever, that they're paired off with somebody and they're asked to just follow these directions and build something together. They don't know what they're building, but they're building something you know, physical. And so they're nailing stuff into boards and whatever, and they're talking with each other and you see clips of them laughing together, you know, these multiple pairs of people. And it turns out what they've built is a bar. And they're like, oh. And so then they pick up the next sheet with their directions and it says, okay, we invite you to sit down, have a beer and watch this video. And then they sit down, they have a beer, they watch the video. And in the video, they see the other person they've been spending hours with building this bar saying things against their own very strong view or against their own identity. And then the question is, 
you have a choice. You can leave or you can sit and have a drink with this person. And so this ad brings people to tears because, and I'm sure they selected a few, right? But what you see is all of them in the ad anyway, decide to stay and have a beer with the person. So what the ad illustrates is contact theory, that because they got to build something together and be together as people, by the time they know that they have this huge, potentially very awful difference, it's okay because they've seen the human, right? So that's contact theory in like a beautiful, short narrative frame. And I think this critique of Braver Angels is spot on. I think that Braver Angels having everyone name themselves red and blue and use labels like literally, here's my name tag, you know, as they come in is not ideal in a conceptual sense, but is still essential. And I'll get to why. I think Braver Angels is still really effective because Heineken had to trick people to get into that room. Heineken had to create an entire artificial thing to get people into that room to build a thing together who were so different. So I think what's gone on in our world is the dynamic of sorting, where people sort themselves into groups that are more like-minded and they do it on so many dimensions. You know, secular people will hang out with secular people and religious people hang out with religious people and and whatever. Like all these dimensions compound one on top of the other. And we've seen this where like political identity and partisan identity has lined up really neatly now into neat little stacks with a bunch of other differences that used to be more mixed together in our political identity. We used to have more like religious Democrats than we do now. And we see the numbers. It's just very different. So those stacks of very separate identities over time have led us to lead very different lives. So I'll give you an example. At Braver Angels, I have a weekly meeting where we talk about like media type stuff and it's really fun. And recently we added someone who is far more red than I am, like far more red. And in the beginning of the meetings, we have check-ins and I'll shoot out some fun check-in question. This week it was like, what's your favorite movie? But you know, the Oscars was the other night. What's your favorite movie? And so many times I ask check-in questions that make sense in my life and they don't really make sense in his. And it brings home to me, this is so complicated to talk about. I hope I'm making sense. It brings home to me how different our lives are. And he was saying like, I think Hollywood has just gone off the deep end years ago. He's like, I didn't go to the theaters once last year and I don't watch television. I don't do any of that. And I was like, oh my gosh, like my very question about (laughs) this sort of assumed like we all would watch the Oscars. We all love movies. Like, do we? I don't know. And he's more working class as well. So there was a time... I don't know. We had a check-in about like spring break. And I said, oh, what's your favorite spring break trip? And he was like, yeah, I didn't do that. <laughs> He's like, I lived in Florida once. But like, no, I didn't, I didn't have a spring break. What is that? I say this to illustrate that our lives are so unbelievably different. And the culture that I'm in, in Seattle as an urban liberal who has money, I have what I need, I have more than I need. The chances that I'm going to run into Wilk in the wild It's so unbelievably low. I was thinking about this too because I was, let's see, I was walking to my car yesterday in a neighborhood in Seattle where I'd met a friend and I had to park a couple blocks away. And so I'm walking to my car and I notice because it's a fairly quiet street and no one else is on the street, there's a couple folks who work for Seattle Public Utilities and they're working like on a sidewalk. They're talking really loudly and they're animated arguing about something that they both agree with. And I don't know what it was. But they were like, yeah, it's like this and this and this. And I realized like a part of me wanted to go and just be like, what are you guys talking about? But, it, you know, you don't do that. That's kind of strange. But I also thought like, who do I know who does manual work in my life? No one. I mean, other than the folks I've met at Brave Rangers. <laughs> no one. <laughs> That's a problem. So contact theory is right. The problem is that we no longer live at a time when the spontaneous connections were happening on their own and we were giving them room and space. And then add to all of that COVID, how many more people are working from home? How many fewer people are now in an office space? I've been watching the American office with my son. I'm introducing him to the office, which is just a great show. And the idea of people sitting in an office together and having to deal with their very awkward and sometimes ridiculous differences is becoming a little quaint at least for many of the urban liberals I know, right? Not for a lot of other people. So yeah, it's a nice idea. But saying no more braver angels, 
you know, they have us start by saying we're red and blue and reify the divide in order to break it. It doesn't make sense. Let's forget all this. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Nope. (laughs) I'm not going to (laughs) work because the default is not that we are all making these organic connections. That is not the case. We are making those connections at a far, far lower level than we used to when our identities were not so stacked and we weren't so animated and motivated to distance ourselves from each other in these huge ways. Someone in my life just yesterday forwarded me an email exchange where a friend of hers had just told the group text, basically, like the group of her friends, like, I can no longer be friends with all of you because some of you are friends with people on the other political side. And the other political side, like, look at what's going on in Florida. They want to destroy us. They want to destroy my family. I can't. I can't anymore. And so this person in my life reached out to me and was like, should I give her space? And I was like, yeah, you probably want to give her space. If you do talk to her, like, reminder how valuable you find her and how valuable you find your friendship and how you, you want the best for her. And, and then just spend the rest of the time listening. That's all you can do. Listen. Don't question or judge anything. Just listen. A lot of great stuff there. You kind of touched on one of my favorite themes of the show, which is our increasing atomization and kind of the thesis of Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone book, which came out, I think, in 2000. And I don't even think he could have predicted how bad things would get 23 years later. But this idea of the increasing atomization of society, the loss of communal spaces of a third place. Everyone thinks that Starbucks invented that phrase to shout out to Seattle, but that phrase is much older than Starbucks. And there's a part of me that's a little bitter that Starbucks has co-opted it. But Starbucks aside, I think if what you're saying, I'm not sure if this is what you're saying, but to forward my response here, if what you're saying is the point of Braver Angels is to help kind of force what is becoming less and less common, which is the idea of forming connections with people who we otherwise might never interact with, the point of bringing people together who might not otherwise talk with one another, of course, is I think a net good. But it's less about that than it is the how they're being brought together or how they're labeled when they are brought together. Your colleague at Braver Angels, what did you say his name was? Wilk. Wilk? Okay, so your colleague at Braver Angels, Wilk. You have a lot of differences with one another, cultural differences. A lot of the ones you're mentioning seem to be class differences as much as they are political. I do wonder if our political divides and class divides are more overlapped now than they were in the past. Yes, they are. And so you can tell what a person's class is by asking how they vote more today than perhaps ever before. Yep. I can put this another way. So as I was doing research for our conversation, I went back to some of your older interviews, right? I re-listened to the one, obviously, that you did with me, the one we did with Jonathan Rausch and others. And one that I returned to is a great conversation that you had with Glenn Beck on his podcast in 2022 that I'd recommend to anyone, okay? Anyone. But as I've been prepping for our talk, Monica, and sort of getting myself in the mindset of what we'd be discussing today and thinking about Pete's perspective, I see the title of that episode that Beck did with you in a different way. The episode is called, Why Would a Lefty Talk to Glenn Beck? Right? That's the title of the episode. Why Would a Lefty Talk to Glenn Beck? And again, I get why it's titled that in the same way that like, the pitch of Braver Angels, you know, like let's get reds and blues together. I think from a marketing perspective, it gets butts in the seats. If you're a conservative and you're like, I feel totally disconnected from my liberal colleagues, or if you're a liberal and you're like, I can feel myself demonizing conservatives and I don't like how that feels, you can get those people in the room with that approach. And the conversation you had with Beck, it is about having difficult but productive conversations across the political aisle. But I wonder, and I think I'm beginning to hone in on my own point in my head. (laughs) This is the importance of talking something out. Hey, it's full circle. Yes, exactly. Regardless of how good we get at having these conversations, can we actually decrease the salience of our political differences by repeatedly calling attention to them? Right, exactly. To put this another way, and then I'll hand it off to you. But I think this helps me form my point. You were born in Mexico. You came to the U.S. when you were six. I imagine your culture and heritage are important to you, but I wonder how helpful it would be to our discourse around immigration and finding commonality between the native born and the immigrant. If there were a Glenn Beck podcast episode titled, why would a Mexican talk to Glenn Beck? It's not that you're not Mexican. 
It's not that your background wouldn't be relevant in a conversation about immigration, but I do wonder if leading with that, if framing you in that way at the start, not only limits how someone watching and listening might perceive you, but also deepens that dividing line, right? I'm not listening to Monica, journalist, wife, mother. I'm listening to Monica, the Mexican. I'm not listening to Monica, lover of all things, Seattle, bridge builder, author. I'm listening to Monica, the lefty. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, yes, and yes. So first I want to make clear, my favorite philosopher is Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he talks in his essay, Self-Reliance, about, I forget the exact wording, but he has this wonderful section where he says, like, if I'm talking to a parish priest, he says that I know that there's not a, like a surprising word that he will say because he's clothed in his perspective. He's supposed to say the same thing. He's a spokesman for something. Mm-hmm. So I want to make clear that I am so not interested in defending braver angels as a matter of course or defending the approach as a matter of course, just because I have to. I'm so allergic to that. Like that's not a thing. So here's, I guess, the way I see that because I think what you're saying is exactly right, that there's a tension and there's a spectrum. And there's a point at which emphasizing the divide in order to bring people who are very divided to a place where they can undivide becomes counterproductive. There is a point at which that happens. I think that that exists. I think if Braver Angels were a lot bigger and more influential than it is, maybe we'd have reached that point. When I look around, I just don't see that yet. I see this like huge roar. And Braver Angels is like, squeak. (laughs) You know, we're still just, "Eh." (laughs) And so there's a principle of you have to start where people are. Glenn Beck knows this principle. He titled that episode, Why Would a Lefty Talk to Glenn Beck? And by the way, when I first saw that title, I was like, ooh, okay. (laughs) You know, like, all right, we're going there. But as a media person, I know that that's what it takes. You have to start where people are. And he was speaking directly to so many people in his audience who use lefty as a slur. And that's the way he was going to get them to listen to that episode. So the Braver Angels approach of red and blue, I mean, we also get a lot of very valid criticism about like, hey, what about purple or other or libertarian? Like, what about that, right? And it's very easy to feel like you don't have a place at Braver Angels if you're not red and blue, which isn't the point. But the point is, America is plagued by this divide of red and blue. It's twisted. And the idea is we have to start there in order to then pull people into something else. And I've talked with a lot of folks who've been through Brave Rangers programs who talk about their journey of like, I too, you know, including my parents, like I too believed that most of the other people were terrible. And then I sat in this room and I just haven't had this opportunity. And we talked about exactly the thing that I would be so afraid to talk to them about because I'm sure that they're terrible about it. And I realize they're not terrible about it. And it made me question all these other assumptions I have about them. And so I go back into my life and I have exported that realization. That's the real power of it. But here's the other thing is like, you can also think, well, Braver Angels could just get people together, but not talk about politics, right? Like, sure, get together people like, you know, red and blue, shh, (laughs) but don't talk about it. And then we get people together and then contact theory, like you're going to talk about food and these other things. But I don't think that that would make a difference. Because those people would come, come together, and then leave with the exact same stereotypes they have about the people who believe the scary things. And they didn't get to surface those scary things in any way. And so they leave with exactly the same stereotype. It's like if the Heineken ad had put those people together but never shown them the video of what the person they were building the bar with believed. They would leave with the same, you know, it wouldn't change how they felt about people who had this opposite view. It would change the way they felt about that one individual. They wouldn't even know that they had that view. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. To your point about meeting people where they are and addressing the time in which we live, this is kind of a brutal analogy, but I think it's relevant, right? Because although we are not at war, we are certainly talking about it a lot. It feels like there's this kind of almost Cold War happening and we're talking about a national divorce so much. Yeah. I find it deeply unsettling. (laughs) Regardless of who on what side of the political aisle mentions it, I I find it such a counterproductive talking point, but I think it speaks to the temperature in the room, so to speak. Yeah. To your point, I imagine if it were in the middle of the troubles, you know, in Northern Ireland, and as a way to ease the tension, you were like, 
hey guys, why don't we just get some of you all together in a bar and just have a drink? I imagine the first question that people would say is, are there going to be Catholics in the room? Are there going to be Protestants in the room? Because if there are going to be Protestants or Catholics in the room, I'm not having a beer with anybody in that bar. And if you don't call out, okay, there's going to be Catholics here, there's going to be Protestants here, but we want to try and talk through this. I think to your point, I think it's a good one. If you don't point to the very divide that is consuming everyone's attention, you might not actually make the progress you seek to make. Yeah. Yeah. And that that brings up an interesting idea, you know, maybe because I could see that happening. I could see that working where it's less everyone's wearing that on their name tag from the beginning. And it's more, this is a mixed room and go at it. Right. What I sense people doing is listening to each other until they know whether you're red or blue, like they have to know. There have been some of those kinds of braver angel spaces where, yeah, I've been, I've been in some of those rooms where you're not actually really sure who's red or blue. But you're listening to try to figure it out. And the context that we've given makes that so important. And the reason people are coming together makes that really important to know. So it goes two ways. But what we're trying to do is, yes, go ahead and know that that other person is red or is blue. And then we're going to put up a structure where whatever judgments or assumptions you make about that side, we're going to deconstruct some of them. You're going to deconstruct some of those together. But no, I mean, here's the thing. Here's what would really suck. What would really suck is if Braver Angels or any other organization that does things this way didn't recognize the point at which it became counterproductive. What would that look like? Separate from or connected to Braver Angels, however you want to take it, when would that point be reached? Like, when would it become counterproductive in your mind? No, it's a, it's a great question. It makes me think of like the interfaith organizations as well. Ibu Patel is, is a really good leader of one of those. I, now I'm kind of going to the parallel. Like, what would it mean? for an interfaith nonprofit to be done with its work, to be finished. And then a part of me goes, well, I don't know that they ever would be finished because probably the divisions among faiths are kind of always there, but that's just assuming. I don't know. With Braver Angels, with the political divide, it does feel different because I do think that there is such a thing as a healthy political divide. And so it's knowing when that has reached a healthy enough level. You'd have to evolve the work. I think Braver Angels methods are so useful for so many divides that you could evolve the work or you could change how the divide is mentioned. But for now, it certainly feels like something really important. But yeah, I really, really do take the point, though. It's like there's a lot of nonprofits that if they achieve their mission, they shouldn't exist. (laughs) Right. The best nonprofit should want to put itself out of business. Exactly. I think that Braver Angels could have a lot of staying power with any place that needs more stitching in American life. Who knows, right? Obviously, our expertise, if you want to call it that, is the political divide. And I I don't deny that there would be inertia. These are human beings. These are people. These are methods that work. There's inertia with everything, right? And if something has been really effective, you don't want to just see it end. But yeah, we will have to be careful. But again, I I don't know. and, And you might see this very differently. I think we are so far away from that point, Michael. I think we're really far away. I agree. And I want to re-emphasize that this conversation and the reason I had you on was not to, and hopefully I've made this clear, was not to be like, how crappy is Braver Angel's approach to this topic, right? I don't find it to be a bad approach and I don't find it to be counterproductive. I am interested in exploring the multiple ways that we could try and solve this puzzle, right? The multiple ways that we can try and bring people together. Because I think you ask different people what they want, and you're going to get different answers, right? It's like if there's a menu and you're at a restaurant, it would be weird to think that everyone would order the lobster roll. You know, like I'm sure some people would want a taco or a burger or something else, you know? I think that Braver Angels is serving a purpose to the very people who would be interested in going to Braver Angels. And to your point about how intensely salient political identities have become, and that really concerns me, is there is this stat that is actually on the Braver Angels website. And I've spoken about this with John Wood Jr. actually in episode one of this podcast. Americans' acceptance of interracial marriage is like at an all-time high. I think it's at 94%, you know? We still got six percentage points to go. Mm. Hopefully we'll get there. But 94%, right? You go back to 1960 and that's like, under 5%. That 5% was an outlier. Jeez, yeah. But if you look at acceptance of whether or not you'd be okay with your son or daughter marrying someone from the other political tribe, so to speak, that 
has like become the race issue of 1960, but that's the issue that we're dealing with today. So in 1960, like 0% of Democrats and 0% of Republicans were like low single digits said that they would have a problem if their son or daughter married someone in the other political party. Today, both parties are about 50%. So that means 50% of Democrats, 50% of Republicans would disapprove of their son or daughter marrying someone from the other political party. 66 years. That's crazy to me. So I think that if you don't acknowledge that, as Braver Angels does, again, I think you're not meeting people where they are and you're not addressing the moment head on. Yeah. And you know, I'll bring up something else now that you've brought up race and civil rights and things like that. With race, the label is not an option. The difference is visible. With politics, the label is an option because the difference is invisible. And I think that's worth saying, right? You can't imagine any, I mean, I know that progress has been unsteady, but you can't imagine any progress without the civil rights movement. And the civil rights movement was not like, let's not call ourselves white and black. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Y'all, like we're white and black. You have to confront it because it's staring you in the face and it's animating what you think of each other. There's no choice not to confront it. So it's also sort of an interesting, you know, oh, but over here on the political divide, we have a choice to not confront it. But I think the dynamic is really the same. I don't think we do have a choice to not confront it. I don't think this is even right. But like, maybe there are people who are just more immune resilient. Like, like I said, I'm obsessed with people. I love people, right? I have this thing where people have surprised me so often, where I have run into true malevolence so rarely, if ever, in my entire life, that I just believe people are good. Mm. And so great. I don't know. I don't want to make this claim, but I think it's a little harder for me, maybe, than some other people to take a label and say, yeah, that person is just irredeemable to me. Mm. That's just not how I tend to think about people. Yeah. But I think there are people who believe they have good reason to think about other people that way. Yes. I've thought about this sometimes when like, I'm on the street and I'm just driving my car. And I'm driving in Seattle, I'm driving in Florida, I'm driving wherever I'm driving in the United States. And I'm thinking to myself, there's all these people that online say that they absolutely hate the other side. They're terrible, terrible people. What they don't know is like that person is driving next to them, you know, stopping at a stoplight so that they don't kill each other. We're all on the streets with all of our beliefs, respecting traffic laws, right? with each other to keep ourselves safe. And we're not worried about it then. Isn't it funny? (laughs) Right. There's people who just think there's people hiding around every corner who believe different things who want to kill me, but they feel safe driving in America. That's a great point. Yeah. You're like, I would never trust this person with my life. (laughs) And yet I do every day on the road. Right. Yeah. But I drive in America. Like for sure you are driving around people who voted differently from you, but you're not thinking about it. Why? Well, in part, because imagine if everyone had a bumper sticker showing what side they were on. Right. That'd be different. You would see a lot more traffic accidents animated by this hatred. Yeah. But you don't because it's invisible, right? Some people do have the bumper stickers. A lot of people don't. Anyway, I'm bringing this up because it's a really interesting contrast. (laughs) No, you're right. We might be red, we might be blue, but on the highway, we're all a metallic silver Toyota Camry. Yeah. Like who even knows? (laughs) Yeah. And like I said, I wouldn't put the Braver Angels approach of put your name tag on into the streets of America. I wouldn't have everyone wear a bumper sticker. Oh, God. Can you imagine how awful traffic would get if everyone had to put Republican or Democrat on their bumper? So it's a weird kind of blessing that this is invisible. It means that we have more choices. Yes. About how we want to tackle this together. Right. So to me, like as someone who really appreciates honesty and transparency, I think that a lot of the reason that our system of checks and balances isn't working on this divide very well is because a lot of people interact not knowing that they disagree. So they don't get to check that box in their head of, I know someone who disagrees with me on abortion, but she's really great. They know that person, but they've never talked about abortion and they're not going to because it's a taboo thing and it's not going to happen. And so they're not going to check that in their own mind. And instead, they're going to go online and say, everyone who disagrees with me on abortion is the devil. But like they literally know people in their lives, but it's not coming up. Yeah. I think that's actually bad. Again, imagine race where like, you know, black people, but you don't know, you know, black people, if you're white, then what kind of check are you making? Right. You have to know they're black. (laughs) So anyway, so this is so interesting. It's it's very, 
there's a lot to this. And I do wonder if there is, I wonder if there is a need to return to the wisdom of decades past of, you know, there are just some things you don't discuss in polite company. Yeah. Don't talk about religion. Don't talk about politics. And I know that even saying that, like, hey, there are some things we shouldn't talk about if we're not really intimate with this person. That might be considered taboo now because everything is catastrophic, whether we're talking about climate change and the world's going to end in five years or every election is the flight 93 election. If we don't elect this person, their fascists are taking over. And if we don't elect this person, they're going to push gender ideology on all your children. We're creating an environment in which not talking about politics with every person you meet within the first five minutes of meeting them, that's the bad thing if you're not talking about it. Right. Isn't it funny? Yeah. Right. When I feel like maybe we should get back to what you were saying, where it's like, I've known Joan for five years. I have no idea how she feels about abortion. And that's okay because Joan is a really good friend and she's there when my kids need to get picked up from school and I'm busy at work Yeah, and she's there for me. Yeah. And we don't need to know necessarily. Right. But- I don't know. This is also about how loud the extremes are. Yes. You know, and we, we've seen the data about this, too. It's not most of Americans who have most of the animosity. It's just not. But because of our media environment, they're the ones that color everything and for everybody. So it's also that. It's like, honestly, I, I've often thought that the best approach, and stronger than Braver Angels or anything, would just be everyone get off social media, right, for a while. Oh, yeah. And turn your attention to your own lives and, and things going on around you and the people who are really with you, you'll end up having more conversations just naturally because you're not looking at your phone. That's another big reason we're missing each other, right? There's so many things that have happened over the last 20 years. I remember, you know, watching science fiction when I was young. I love science fiction. And earlier, like last century, the idea was that by now we were going to be in space. We were going to be on other planets. You know, the idea was that we're, we're going to make progress on getting out of the planet. But instead, what happened is all of our technological progress has been internal communication, how we think, how we interact, who we are. So the, the revolution in human dynamics has been about identity and culture and our own thinking has become an enemy, you know, which is why you see the rise in mindfulness and meditation <laughs> for some people. And oh, my God. So anyway, our technology is just taking us away from ourselves, but not by going into space on other planets, but by existing on different planets in our own minds. Yes. Instead of going out and exploring new frontiers together, we're going inward and exploring ourselves alone. Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And on that note, and as a final question, Monica, the idea of getting off the internet and connecting with other people, I want to briefly Talk about the barbarian in the room, Shadrach. <laughs> Shadrach. Yeah. What has Dungeons and Dragons taught you about community? What lessons have you learned from your campaigns that you feel might be relevant to all the non-barbarians out here in the real world? I'm so glad you asked that. Wow. I have been Shadrach for seven years? Going on seven years. No, that's not true. Never mind. I was Orsabella's Willow Bear for several years. So Shadrach came in four years ago, something like that. In order to play Dungeons and Dragons with my group, there's five players and then my husband is the dungeon master. So this is a game, a story that you build together as groups of friends. You have to find a time. You have to line up people's schedules and get everybody together. I think what it's taught me about community is the importance of just spending time together. Because we play for three, four hours at a time, and it can be kind of slow sometimes. You're literally building a story. You're going through these fantastical landscapes, and you're trying to play your character, and you're rolling dice to see whether what your character did works or not. My friends are all playing, right? So there's one friend who is fairly reserved, but she's playing a character who is not. And it's so fun to watch her play into that. And watch her like play with her personality and bring that back into her life. I've used my Dungeons and Dragons characters to explore things I'm curious about. So Shadrick, I created because I wanted to explore rage. I created him while I was thinking about writing the book. And I wanted to understand the anger that people had that I didn't in the same way. And I really wanted to explore that. And so when I play Shadrick, I get really angry. I destroy things when I get mad. And then my friends in the party have to deal with it. But they do. And so we end up forming these relationships where we take care of each other, but we're just characters. It's so weird, Michael, <laughs> but it's so cool. It's so cool. And I, I, gosh, 
communities create their stories together. You build your own story together. You know, you have your own story in your head of who you are. And then it has to like play a role in the story of your friends and your community. And like that community has to make its own collective story. So that's what that is. It's just, are you playing? Are you performing? Are you being real? What does that mean? What needs are you trying to get filled by the stories you're telling yourself and the stories that you build together with your friends? And can you talk about that every now and then instead of just being in the world that you're creating? Role-playing as something you're not to learn what it might be like to live that life. I think that there is a lot of wisdom in that approach. And I enjoy these talks, your two episodes of this podcast, Monica, rather selfishly, as I'm quite susceptible to falling into despair around these topics. You know, I fall victim to my own self-sabotaging addiction to doom scrolling and gloom casting. But in the same way that I think forcing yourself to smile can ultimately literally have a positive impact on your actual mood. I think exposing ourselves to healthier, more optimistic perspectives can alter our own reality the same way negative perspectives can. So while I love that our audience is able to listen to and learn from you, make no mistake about that, I am gladly, greedily taking advantage of this conversation to reset my own viewpoint, Mm. which has been a bit out of whack lately. So thank you, Monica, for all that you do. And thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. This was delightful. This was wonderful. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. I want to learn more about the Where We Go Next audience, which means I want to learn more about you and your thoughts on the show. So if you're listening right now, please send me an email at wherewegopod at gmail.com and let me know, one, what's your all-time favorite episode of the podcast and why? Two, what's your least favorite episode of the podcast and why? And three, Where would you like to see this show go next? And hey, while you're here, if you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two sentence review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you.